wonderful psalm. And as we come before it, let's pray. Father, this morning we have already seen the importance of your word. We have rejoiced in the openness of your word and the fact that we can memorize it. Father, we pray that the preaching of your word this morning would open hearts, that your word would not return void, but would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. Give us hearts that are open, ears that are open, and speak to us from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is wonderful to be back with you this morning, and as much as we love all of you, that's not really the, uh, the incentive in us coming down here, obviously, <laughs> as any grandparent would attest. <laughs> it is wonderful to see Nathan and Beck and Louis, and uh, it's wonderful to see all of you. So. Psalm 9. This was a difficult psalm to try and work through. And I want to tell you why. First of all, let's look at the structure of the psalm. I've got the English Standard Version this morning, and if you look after at the beginning of Psalm 9, you will see that the ESV has a footnote mentioning that both Psalm 9 and 10 may have originally been one psalm. It notes that both psalms follow an acrostic pattern, each stanza beginning with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But even in that, it's not uniform. From chapter nine, Psalm 9 through to Psalm 10, a lot of the Hebrew alphabet is used, but not all of them. And it also notes that in the Septuagint version, they are one psalm. But this morning I'll be treating them as separate and I'll be preaching just from Psalm 9. As I said, it's very difficult to come up with a clearly defined structure for Psalm 9. Even Spurgeon in his Treasury of David struggled to define a clear structure, which made me feel a lot better. Now we'll get to the psalm in a moment, but for now just run your eye over it. There are aspects that you should be able to spot for yourself even as you go through it. And in this psalm we see that David sort of flip-flops between addressing God personally on the one hand and teaching his human audience about God on the other hand. So just look down at Psalm 9 and you'll see this. In verses 1 to 6, praise is directed to God. David addresses God in the second person. You can see that in verse 2. He says, I will be glad and exult in you. Verses 7 to 9 seem to be more didactic, more teaching oriented. David instructs other people about God. And these verses are spoken in the third person. You see that in verse 8. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the world with uprightness. 
In verse 10, David once more addressed God in the second person, only to revert to the third person in verses 12 to 13. In verses 13 to 14, he, he once again addressed God personally. Verses 15 to 18 are again didactic, teaching his listeners about God. And finally, in verses 19 to 20, with the conclusion of the psalm, addresses God personally one, once more. Now, all of that makes it quite difficult to outline. But there is more. Spurgeon highlighted a symmetry within Psalm 9, albeit a very lopsided symmetry. If you look at the table on the screen, you'll see what he came up with. The major headings are in the left-hand column and the other two columns show how they are found in the psalm. So the first and largest section of the psalm concerns verses 1 to 14 and deals with the righteous, those who seek to obey God. So concerning the righteous, we see this. Regarding thanksgiving, we see uh, thanksgiving for past mercies shown by God in verses 1 to 6. Regarding the future, the judgment leading to vindication of the righteous in verses 7 to 12. And the prayer offered is for grace and salvation experienced by the righteous in verses 13 and 14. The rest of the psalm is the other part, as I said, very lopsided, verses 15 to 20, concerning the wicked. Regarding thanksgiving, David gives thanksgiving for past judgments shown by God to the wicked. Regarding the future, he he praises God for judgment leading to damnation of the unrepentant wicked in verses 17 and 18. And the prayer offered in verses 19 to 20 is for judgment and fear to be experienced by the wicked. Now you can see the symmetry there in that table, albeit a very lopsided one within the psalm itself. And that's about as good as I've been able to find as as far as looking at a structure for this psalm. Now, the inability to divide the psalm into sections has two results that I can see. The first result is that we need to take the psalm in its entirety rather than trying to break it down. We need to treat it as one psalm. The second result from looking at the psalm is the example that David provides for us. David was obviously quite comfortable flip-flopping between teaching people about God and addressing God himself and does this over and over again in the psalm. This sort of shows an intimacy that David had with God that we would do well to certainly emulate. Next, let's, let's look at the occasion that led to the psalm. Obviously, it is a psalm of David, as it says there, but there's no indication as to when he penned this psalm. Now, look at verse 5 for a moment. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I have a purpose for it. Look at verse 5. He says, you have made the wicked perish. Now, the Aramaic version of the verse renders it, thou hast destroyed the impious Goliath. Now, this is not to suggest that David wrote this immediately after he defeated Goliath. Instead, we ought to interpret it as a general term of God's enemies. 
In both verses 11 and 14, we read about Zion. That is a reference to Jerusalem. Now, David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He then went on to conquer the Jebusites and take Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5. All right? So we can probably assume that David wrote this psalm after conquering Jerusalem and setting up the Ark of the Covenant there. Further, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, which is basically the high point of David's life, we have a list of people that David defeated. So it's my guess that Psalm 9 was penned somewhere between 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 2 Samuel chapter 11, his great downfall with Bathsheba. That event in his life triggered a collapse in spiritual confidence from which David never truly recovered. Yes, he was forgiven for that uh, adultery, but he never regained the spiritual heights he had enjoyed previously. And the tone that we have here in Psalm 9 is one of incredible confidence in God. So if I was to guess, I would say that it sort of happened probably between 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 11, but again, it's a guess. Now, all of that is just an introduction to Psalm 9. We've already had Psalm 9 read to us. The title, if you're taking notes and you want to uh, record it, Resounding Praise for God's Bountiful Blessings. Resounding Praise for God's Bountiful Blessings. We're going to have five main points. Point number one this morning, thanksgiving for past mercies. Look at verses 1 and 2. To the choir master, according to Muthlaban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, the first thing we notice here is the title given in the text. Now, in the ESV or in my ESV Bible, those are in small capitals. You need to know that those are part of the psalm. They were not added later by the translator or by the editor. Um, so where it says, To the choir master, according to Muthlaban, a psalm of David, that was in the original scriptures. Okay, But we have no idea what Muthlaban refers to. We just have no idea whether it's a musical term or not. We do not know. But in these verses, David burst forth in exultant praise to God. And you see, his praise is very public. David wanted everyone to hear why he chose to shout out about and to God. In 1860, P.B. Power wrote the book, The I Wills of the Psalms. And on this portion of the psalm, he says this, quote, when we have received any special good thing from the Lord, it is well according as we have opportunities to tell others of it. We may tell friends and relations that we have received such and such a blessing and that we trace it directly to the hand of God. Let us not be ashamed to glorify God by telling what we know and feel he has done. 
Let us watch our opportunity to bring out distinctly the fact of his acting. Let us feel delighted at having an opportunity from our own experience of telling what must turn to his praise. And them that honour God, God will honour in turn. If we be willing to talk of his deeds, he will give us enough to talk about. End quote. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. You remember David was a warrior. He battled Israel's enemies many times. So you can picture what is going on in this verse. You can picture him and his men lined up before an enemy, probably on one hill, and on the other hill will be the, uh, his enemies. And there would be shouting and rattling of swords and spears and shields and stuff. There'd be taunts shouted from one army to the other. But suddenly God himself appears in some form. And the enemy gasped in horror and immediately realized that the battle had suddenly become hopeless. They turn and run, but their flight is useless. And they are slain even as they run. That's the picture that we've got there in verse 3. Now you say, but hang on, that's just allegorical. Sure, God might fight uh, in theory, but it's never going to happen in real life. Well, these things do happen in real life. Often the trouble is that we simply don't know about them. Of course, the secular media is never going to give us such information. On the screen you can see a monument that was erected in 1736 by a guy named Nehemiah Griffiths. It commemorates a battle that took place in that area around 429 AD. Let me tell you about it. Early in the 5th century, Christian villages on the Welsh borders were being harried by pagan Picts and Saxons. And now, just after Easter, in the year 429, the little community learnt that an army was on its way to murder them all. For help, they turned to a visiting bishop from Gaul, that's France, named Germanus. Taking command, he quickly assembled them in a valley among hills where there, was a no, where there was known to be a strange and alarming echo. When the army of pagan Picts and Saxons came around the corner, the Britons suddenly shouted at the top of their voices, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! The hills magnified the sound all around until the startled enemy ran as fast as they could, thinking, says the 7th century historian Bede, thinking the very rocks and sky were falling on them. And so it was that quite unexpectedly the Britons gained the bloodless Alleluia victory. Now the next slide shows the translation of the Latin inscription found at the base of the monument. And I won't be able to do this with the microphone, but hopefully you can hear me. The Saxons with the furious Picts ally, the now enfeebled Britons to destroy, march forth their armies to this valley famed for this event and since May's garment named 
two apostolic leaders at their head, Garmin and Lupus, then the Britons led, and Christ, their glorious hope in this dread hour, honours their faith with his approving power. Loud hallelujahs thrice salute the skies, and neighbouring hills reverberate the noise. The foes astonished quit the dreadful field, and bloodless conquest to the Britons yield. These shout triumphant, now a victory gain, not by the force of arms, but faith obtained. Nehemiah Griffiths, in memory of the Hallelujah victory, erected this monument, A.D. 1736. How many of you knew about the Hallelujah monument? Put your hand up. Hmm. I mean, I'm not having a go at you, right? But this is the problem. David in Psalm 9 set up a monument to God's faithfulness in battle. Now we may not know to which battle David referred here, but if we did know, we ought to set a monument there like that one. In fact, our lives ought to contain things that remind us of God's goodness in our own lives. Has God given you some victory? In some area? Do you have a memento of that event, whatever it may be? If you do, make sure that 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 item or the story behind that item is recorded for posterity so that your descendants will be able to know this thing that we have. God produced a victory in one of my ancestors. Here it is here and this is the story. Otherwise that thing will get thrown away and the story lost. But otherwise they are able to praise God for his deliverance in your family. Let's get back to Psalm 9. Look at verses 4 to 6. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now notice in verses 4 and 5. David recounted five things that God did to help him. In the ESV, we see the phrase, you have, five times in those two verses. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. As you read scripture, when things are repeated, note the repeat. It is not there by chance. And David then went on to state that even the memory of his enemies has perished. God brought about that victory and David wanted everyone to know about it. Now, going back to the Hallelujah Monument, Nehemiah Griffiths erected that monument in 1736. That was 287 years ago. But the event that he memorialised occurred 1,594 years ago. 
Because Nehemiah Griffiths chose to pay for and erect that monument almost 300 years ago, we who are alive today can rejoice in God's goodness and praise his name for a victory that occurred almost 1,600 years ago. This also reminds me of an incident in Pilgrim's Progress. Hopefully you, you are familiar with the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress and you remember that, that he was equipped for his journey in a place known as the Palace Beautiful, a picture of the church. I want to read a portion and then I'm going to ask a question. The question I will ask is this, what was Bunyan's purpose in writing this particular portion in this way and what does this have to do with Psalm 9? Let me read to you from Pilgrim's Progress. The next day they took him into the armory where they showed him all kinds of equipment that the Lord had provided for pilgrims. Sword, shield, helmet, breastplate, all prayer and shoes that would never wear out. Hopefully you notice that from Ephesians chapter 6. There were enough of these to equip many people for the Lord's service, as many as the stars in the heavens. They also showed him some of the instruments with which his servants had done wonderful things. Moses' rod, the hammer and tent peg used by Jael to slay Sisera, the pitchers, trumpets and lamps used by Gideon to put the armies of Midian to flight. They showed him the ox goad used by Shamgar to kill 600 Philistines, <coughs> the jawbone used by Samson to do such mighty feats and the sling and stone used by David to kill Goliath of Gath. They also showed him the sword with which their Lord will overpower the man of lawlessness in the day of his coming confrontation. They showed him many other excellent things which delighted Christian. After this they went to bed for the night. A few paragraphs later we read this. Now it seemed to Christian that it was time to go and they agreed. But first they said, let us take you to the armory again. When they got there, they equipped Christian from head to foot with all he could need in case he was attacked on his way. Now, if you know the story, you will know that as he goes down from the palace beautifully, he goes into the valley uh, of humiliation, and there he meets Apollyon, and there's a battle that goes on there. So the question is, what was Bunyan's purpose in having them show Christian all those historic items? Answer, those items reminded him of what God had done in the past. And Christian recalling those things would strengthen his faith. They then fitted him out in armour ready for him him to uh, face his own battles and sent him on his way. And as I said, the very next chapter shows his battle with Apollyon. So the second question, what does this have to do with Psalm 9 and with us today? Well, you and I need encouragement in our own battles. And if you and I are constantly reminded of all that God has done in the past, that will greatly encourage each of us in our battle day by day. In fact, that's exactly why God had the scriptures recorded. Keep your finger there in Psalm 9. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. This also ties in with your memorization of scripture and your catechism. All right. Turn over to Romans 15. 
Romans 15, look at verses 4 to 6. Incidentally, Romans 15.4 was one of my memory verses in my course. Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you should do the catechism. It's harder for older people to memorize scripture. I understand that. But the scriptures have been given that you might have hope. That's why they were written down. And so the catechism questions that you guys are looking at, the verses that accompany and support those questions, or the answers to those questions, ought to encourage you in your fight day by day. If you have young kids, learn them as a family. If you have grandkids and the grandkids are old enough, learn it with them as well. Put them on your phone. If you've got a mobile phone, put them in your pocket as, as Chris suggested. Put them on little cards. You can buy five, three by five cards from office works or any office supplies. Write them out, memorize them. And it will be to your good to do that. That's why the scriptures have been given to us for our encouragement and hope. Okay, let's go back to Psalm 9. This brings us to point number two this morning, future vindication of the righteous. Future vindication of the righteous, verses 7 to 12. Now, often as you read the Psalms, you will find truths about God. And as a Christian, you need to, to have these, as you see these in the Psalms, your radar ought to suddenly spring to life, little flags waving everywhere. Those are what the psalmist wants you to learn. Find out who God is and, and pay extra special attention to such verses. Now, in this particular psalm, the truths about God are found in verses 7 to 10. Look at those verses. Verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Wonderful verses. Now the contrast there is uh, the contrast there between the transience of the wicked on one hand and the stability of Yahweh on the other is evident. The wicked may behave as they will, but God sits enthroned forever. Now I know you guys have been working your way through the Psalms. Hopefully a little flag's gone up in your mind, Psalm 2, right? Turn back to Psalm 2. Very similar thought that we find in Psalm 2. Go back there and, and let me read, and you will see the, the similarity there. 
Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Men and women may do what they will. But God sits enthroned forever. Not only that, if we go back to Psalm 9, but he has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Now that may not clutch your heart until you think of the opposite. Many world leaders appear unmovable and established. Now, if such a leader rules wickedly and you happen to live in in their country, then your lot is difficult indeed. Righteous men and women living under such regimes tend to hunker down and make themselves as small as possible so that they will not be noticed. They pray for regime change and they live in fear. That's what you would find if you were living under a wicked leader who is firmly established. But when you think of God, he is absolutely unmovable. He rules with justice, with righteousness and with uprightness. So the effect of such a realization is given in verses 9 and 10. Twice in that verse, David describes Yahweh as being a stronghold. The King James Version says he is a refuge. Now you guys living in the country would see places traveling around uh, Victoria. You see signs saying that such and such a place is a stronghold or a refuge if there's fires. If bushfires threaten the township, residents can travel to that place of refuge and be confident of being safe. Sometimes they have beds and they've got food there and there might might be on-site showers and stuff like that. People can stay there and be safe from the fires. Obviously their houses and farms and stuff are, are under threat, but the people are safe. And that's the idea here. God is a stronghold, a refuge, a place of safety. So for whom is God a refuge? Look there at verse 9. It says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. 
And when would the oppressed need such a refuge? The verse tells us, in times of trouble. Now that's a very imprecise designation, but that's intentional. Any kind of trouble. If you are struggling this morning in whatever that way that might be, if you see yourself as being oppressed or in trouble, let me encourage you to memorize Psalm 9 verses 9 and 10. There is such assurance in those two verses. Albert Barnes says this, quote, The more intimate our knowledge of God, the more entirely shall we trust in him. The more we learn of his real character, the more shall we see that he is worthy of universal love. It is much to say of anyone that the more he is known, the more he will be loved. And in saying this of God, it is but saying that one reason why men do not confide in him is that they do not understand his real character, end quote. Now, the verses we've just, sorry, the verses we've just looked at, look at the flow there. Look back in your Bible there. Verses 7 to 8 tells us, tell us truths about Yahweh. Verses 9 and 10 then build on those truths. If God is indeed enthroned forever and judges uprightly, then he must, then he can be relied on by those experiencing trouble. And then verses 11 and 12 give the logical response which is to sing praises to him and to tell others about him. Look at verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the, the peoples his deeds. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Again, let me encourage you to highlight verses 7 to 12. If you are currently in trouble, these are truths you need to remember. You need not only to remember that God is righteous, he is not only a stronghold in whom you can put your trust, he is not only the one who deserves our praises, but he is a God to whom you can confidently run today. Now at this point in the psalm, David gets very personal. And this brings us to point number three this morning. Point number three, prayer for grace and salvation. Now, David has just rejoiced in God's goodness and righteousness and saving ability. But then he thinks, hang on, I'm in trouble now. And that realization drives him to prayer also. Look at verses 13 to 14. David says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Again, it's vital that we see the progression here. Verses 7 to 8 tells us God is enthroned and judges justly. Verses 9 and 10, he is a stronghold for those in trouble. Verses 11 and 12, those who trust him will praise him. And David, finding himself in trouble, cries out to God in order that in days to come he will be able to rejoice in God's salvation. Last Sunday at our church we had a guest preacher who preached on Daniel chapter 3. Remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. 
Now you needn't turn there, but listen as I read Daniel chapter 3 verses 16 to 18. At this point, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Nebuchadnezzar is enraged and he said, you bow down or I'm going to throw you in the fire. This is their reply. Daniel 3 verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, ne- we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now at that point in the narrative in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had no confidence that God would save them. For all they knew, they were just about to be frazzled and die. Yet whichever way it turned out, their confidence was 100% in God and they said, God's going to deliver us either out of the furnace or through the furnace. So what? You will no longer be a problem to us, O king. We're not going to bow down and worship your idol. David knew also in Psalm 9 that he was able to trust God and that trust would result in praise to God. Now, salvation can come in one of three ways. Either being saved before going through the trial or being saved after going through the trial or, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, being saved by going through the trial. And the preacher last week made the point that at that particular point in time, while Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were in the, in the furnace, that was the safest place for them. Outside was a whole nation who hated them and a king who wanted them dead. The safest place for them was in the furnace. And God saved them through that trial. Now, if you've been following the outline that I gave you earlier, the one in the table, you'll see that all these three main points concern the praise of God given by those who trust him. Now we move on to the second column in the chart, or the final column, dealing with those people and nations that choose to ignore God. Now, we've already done most of the heavy lifting, so we can go through this very quickly. Point number four this morning, praise for just retribution on the wicked. Praise for just retribution on the wicked. Look at verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hiagion Selah. Now, earlier we read Psalm 2, which also speaks of the wicked plotting against God. They don't sit in idle rebellion against God and his people. Instead, they are cunning. They devise plans in secret by which they intend harm to God's people. However, this verse tells us that all their plans not only fail in their intent... But it is they themselves that are deceived by their own ingenuity. The trap they so carefully dug and the cover they so diligently worked on in order to deceive the innocent only resulted in them falling headlong into it. You can easily imagine the righteous man or woman after this 
walking past in surprise and wonder, seeing the wicked either dangling up in a tree from the trap he had made or in the hole in the ground in the trap that he made. That's what the Lord is able to do. And he does it in order that he may gain even more glory. Importantly, verse 16 states that through this, he has made himself known. Those that lay traps but were caught themselves in those traps are forced to admit by those circumstances that not only God exists, but he works sovereignly to thwart their carefully laid plans. His purpose is to bring conviction of sin. It is God's overwhelming desire that all men and women come to repentance, even those who maliciously plot against the righteous. Right? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. If such a man or woman were to repent... God would extend his forgiveness even to them. Now, he will give them what they do not deserve. They deserve punishment. But he gives them forgiveness. But that's what grace is all about. But if that same man or woman becomes hardened by the Lord's chastening and refuses to repent and continues in that rebellion until death, he will... There will be no future for them but the fires of hell, which is what God's word clearly teaches. Spurgeon concludes his comments on this verse by saying this, In considering this terrible picture of the Lord's overwhelming judgments of his enemies, we are called upon to ponder and meditate upon it with deep seriousness by the two untranslated words, Hageon, Selah. Meditate, pause, consider and tune your instrument. Bethink yourselves and solemnly adjust your hearts to the solemnity which is so well becoming the subject. Let us in a humble, humble spirit approach these verses. End quote. You've probably been told this as, we've gone through the, as you've gone through the Psalms, but the word sailor generally means pause, consider. And it's no mistake that it comes at the end of this warning in verse 16. All right, point number five this morning, future judgment on the wicked. Look at verses 17 to 19. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Now in these verses we see once again the final end of all those who refuse to repent and acknowledge God's sovereign right to rule. In a coming day, God's judgment will be executed and it will happen with 100% accuracy. Those like ourselves, those who are Christians who deserved God's wrath but bowed the knee in repentance, trusting the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, will find their sins covered and they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But those who deserved God's judgment but refused to repent 
will spend the rest of eternity paying the awful price of their own rebellion against God. But in the final analysis, no one will ever be able to accuse God of injustice. Those who choose to repent will praise God for his mercy and loving kindness and those suffering in hell will not be over-punished. God will recompense the wicked and will satisfy the suffering of the righteous. Look again, look at verse 19 again. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Point number six. I know I said there was five points. It was actually six. I'm sorry. Point number six. Prayer that the wicked would repent. The psalm concludes with a prayer that God would once again roll up his sleeves, as it were, and reveal himself to unrepentant men. Look at verse 20. David says, Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. The final sentence of this psalm is one of my favourite verses. Today you and I live in a society that is littered with people who demand respect even though they have done nothing to earn such respect. But of course there have been and there still are men and women who have achieved feats in their lifetime that are truly amazing. One of my heroes is a guy named Isambard Kingdom Brunel. How many of you heard of Brunel? Yeah, a few of you, yeah, the engineers. <laughs> Brunel was a great engineer in the 19th century. He made ships and, and bridges and railway tunnels and all sorts of stuff. Incredible guy. And his achievements still stagger the imagination. How did he do all of that? Or you might think of the genius of Mozart and men like him and the, the genius that, that they, what they were able to accomplish. Or sporting achievements of men like Sir Don Bradman. Right? These people who have done extraordinary things. For all man's vaunted pride and pomp, all his or her claims to success, which may even be legitimate, it makes no difference in the end, he or she is only a human being. And as such, they are feeble, frail, and finite. Let me once more quote Spurgeon. He says, One would think that men would not grow so vain as to deny themselves to be but men, but it appears to be a lesson which only a divine schoolmaster can teach some proud spirits. Crowns leave their wearers but men. Degrees of eminent learning make their owners not more than men. Valour and conquest cannot elevate beyond the dead level of but men. And all the wealth of Croesus, the wisdom of Solomon, the power of Alexander the Great, the eloquence of Demosthenes, if added together, would leave the possessor but a man. May we ever remember this, lest, like those in this text, we should be put in fear. End quote. I want to finish this morning by, by drawing your attention back to verses 7 and 8. 
Look there at your Bibles once more. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for this psalm. We thank you for David who has set up a monument to your greatness and your mercy and your loving kindness. And Father, we who sit here today are able to see his words and rejoice in your loving kindness also to us. Father, we do thank you that you sit enthroned forever. And Lord, if there are any here who do not have not yet bowed the knee before you, May they see that they are but men and as such they stand before you in need of forgiveness and cleansing. Father, we do thank you that that cleansing is still available. And Lord, we pray that you would move hearts, that men and women would rejoice in you and in your salvation. Father, we pray that you would give those people no rest until they find their rest in you. And for those of us who do know you, Father, we pray that you would help us to know you more, to know your word more, that we would hide your word in our heart, that we may not sin against you. And Father, I pray for the church here at Mafra as they look at doing the catechism, the modern catechism this year. Father, may you encourage people to hide your word in their hearts. We pray for those that struggle with doing that, Lord, that you would help them to be diligent and that by the end of this year, Father, they would know you more and your word more. May you continue to expand your kingdom for your own glory's sake. May your kingdom come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.